appreciate Brother Tim's message this morning. Uh, that truth is, uh, is uh, a truth that I wish more God's people would understand. To know God is one thing, to know about God is another. And that's what Jesus was teaching in John 6, 44. He says, no man can come to me except the Father which sent me. Draw him, and I raise him up again at the last day. As it's written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. I do the best I can every Sunday to teach you about God. But I've never taught anybody to know God. Nobody. In my 50 years of preaching, I've never taught anybody to know God. Only God can do that. But I've been trying to teach God's people about God for a long time. And I hope the Lord will bless me and have a few more years to continue to do it. Um, I want to speak to you this morning on three arcs that's found in the Word of God. Now, one arc I guess most people would be most familiar with, or if you used to ask them, uh, can you name one of the three arcs in the Bible, then they would say Noah's Ark. But in the book of Exodus, chapter 2, we find an ark of bulrushes. And in this ark, a man by the name of Moses, when he was three months old, was placed and then we find in Exodus chapter 25 where God gives instructions to the nation of Israel to build a tabernacle that he refers to as a sanctuary. And in that sanctuary would be different pieces of furniture. And the one he starts off with to begin with there for Moses to make is called the Ark of the Covenant. And that's on the inside of the holiest of the holies. Now all three of these uh, have some things about them that ought to remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to speak to you about these three arcs, Lord willing, this morning. Now let's go to the first one here in the book of Genesis uh, in chapter 6. In chapter 6 we find where the Lord says unto Noah to, hit, to build an ark out of gopher wood. He goes on to tell Noah the dimensions of this ark. He gives him a blueprint. He gives him the divine specifications how to build this ark. Once to be built of all the materials that go in it, one thing and another. And we find where Noah obeyed the Lord in all that God commanded him. But as we look prior to this, we see some of the conditions on this earth that led up to why God would tell Noah to build an ark. Now, judgment is going to come, and God is going to deliver Noah and his family from this judgment of a flood. But why was this flood going to come? If you go back in the fourth chapter in the book of Genesis, we find the first two sons that were born in this world was Cain and Abel, born, of course, unto Adam and Eve. Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and brought forth a son, and his name was Cain. And then she brought forth another son, his name was Abel. We're told that Abel brought an offering unto the Lord, the firstling of the flock. And God had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But Cain brought an offering to the Lord, from the works of his hand, that is, from the fruit of the field. And the Bible says God had non-respect to, to Cain, excuse me, and then to his offering. Now, the offering of Cain reflected what kind of person Cain was. And the offering of Abel reflected what kind of person Abel was. When Abel brought that offering to the Lord, it was the first thing of the flock. It was a sacrifice. There was a death. Blood was shed. And, of course, it's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. When John the Baptist pointed him out and said, Behold the Lamb of God which take away the sin of the world. So we have the first type, you might say, of the Lord Jesus Christ in this offering that was made by Abel. But Cain 
brought the fruit of the ground. And it was a picture of his works before God. Now God, notice, God did not have respect first to the offering and then to the person. Or non-respect first to the offering and then the person. But there's the opposite. God had respect to Abel, therefore he respected his offering. He had non-respect unto Cain, therefore he respected none his offering. Now because God rejected his offering, Cain was very wroth and Cain was upset. And the Lord entered into a conversation with Cain. Now we find where the Lord is going to curse Cain. And he's going to tell Cain that he's going to be a vagabond and a fugitive. And a vagabond is a person without a home and a fugitive is somebody going away from home. Now, the Lord never has called his people vagabonds and fugitives. You know what the Lord calls you? He calls you pilgrims and strangers. All right? A pilgrim is somebody on the way home. A stranger is somebody away from home. So let's get that all again. A vagabond has no home. A fugitive is fleeing from his home. A pilgrim is somebody heading home. And a stranger is somebody away from home. So you are strangers and pilgrims. You are away from home. This is not our home here. We're just traveling along in this world. We're a pilgrim heading home. And one day we'll all be home. Thank God you're not a fugitive. Thank God you're not a vagabond. That you're a pilgrim and you're a stranger. But he tells Cain that he's a fugitive and he's a vagabond. And Cain says, my punishment is more than I can bear. Notice in this statement... Cain says nothing about being sorry for what he did in killing his brother Abel. He's not sorry. He, he's not happy about this punishment that God has placed upon him. God has told him that he will not be able to receive the strength of the earth. When he tries to till the ground, the earth will not yield her strength unto him. That's why he's got to be a vagabond and a fugitive. And Cain is concerned that someone is going to slay him, but God's going to put a mark on Cain. And, you know, I guess the book of Genesis produces more questions than any other book in the Bible. Somebody wants to know what was that mark. It doesn't matter what the mark was. Somehow or another, God put a mark upon Cain to identify him as somebody they were not to touch. He said, he that takes his vengeance upon, upon Cain, you know, would suffer the consequences of the wrath of God. So Cain had this mark on him, and See, Cain has slew his brother Abel, and everybody in the, on the earth at this time is kin one to another. So Cain is traveling, and he goes to a certain place, and he marries a woman. Marries and has a wife. And somebody says, well, where did his wife come from? He's in the land of Nod. Where did his wife come from? Now, just because we're told that Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, that doesn't mean they didn't have other children. This is all we're told about. Obviously, there's other people on this earth for him to be able to marry somebody. So he marries this woman, and he has a son by the name of Enoch. And he's going to build a city and name this city after him. Now, in this chapter here, chapter 5, you're going to find we have six generations of Cain. There's not one thing in this, these six generations that indicates to us there was any godliness in Cain and his descendants. But you're going to find where Adam and Eve have another child. At the end of chapter uh, 4, he has, they have another child. And the name of that child is Seth. And Seth has a child by the name of Enos. And then we're going to find ten generations that come through the line of Seth. Now you've got two lines. You've got the line of Cain, you've got the line of Seth. The line of Cain is a line, a line of ungodliness. 
the line of Seth is a line of godliness. Keep that in mind. In the last part of Genesis chapter 4, the last verse says, after Seth, after Adam and Eve have Seth, and Seth has Enos, it says, then men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Now this is the first time we're told this. And then men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, whose line does this have reference to? It's not Cain's, it's Seth's. And men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And then we start in chapter 5, we find where this is the generation of Adam. You know, when Adam was made, he was made in the image of God. But at this point, those who are uh, descendants of Adam are not made in the image of God. They're made in the image of Adam because sins come into the world, and that has all changed. And so we have ten generations here. And it's going to end with a man by the name of Noah. Now, there's some similarities between these two lines, the line of Cain and the line of Seth. There's some similarities in terms of the names over here. Uh, in both lines, you're going to have an Enoch. In both lines, you're going to have a Lamech. But the Enoch in Cain's is going to be a lot different than the Enoch over here in Seth, right? Enoch lived how long? 365 years, and he was taken and was found not. Over in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, it says that God translated Enoch. He should not see death. And before he was translated, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And we're told in Genesis here that he walked with God. Here's a man who walked with God for 365 years. Well, he was 365 years old when he was taken. He was actually 65 years old when he had a child by the name of Methuselah. Now, Methuselah is a well-known name. I've heard people growing up, somebody in their 90s say, well, he's going to live as long as Methuselah. Not quite. Methuselah lived to be 969 years of age. He, he's the longest living person we have a record of, 969 years old. And he's the grandfather of Noah. Noah lived to be 950. Adam lived to be 930. Most everybody in this list here is going to live to be over 900 with the exception of two people. And those two people is Noah's father and Noah's great-grandfather. His father's name is Lamech. He will live to be 777. That's three sevens. And we find Methuselah is going to be the longest of all those listed. He's going to live to be 969. But his great-grandfather is only going to live to be 365. He died a young fellow. 365 years. So it's kind of interesting to me to know that Noah's great-grandfather lived the shortest period of time. And Noah's grandfather lived the longest period of time. 365 and 969. Now, if you look at Lamech over here in the line of Cain, you're going to find where he murdered a person. He killed a person. And that was his character. And he had three sons. Over here, Lamech in the line of uh, Abel, uh, Seth is going to have a son of the name of Noah who's going to have three sons. But let's compare the three sons of Lamech and the three sons of Noah just for a moment. The three sons of Lamech were known for three things. The first one, his name was Jabel. He was known as one who dwelt in tents and kept cattle. The next one's name was Jubal. That was his brother. And he was known as the inventor of the organ and the harp. And then you have Tubacain. And Tubacain is the one who invented uh, metals and things of which weapons and implements of farming were invented in that day. I'm sure the world in that day probably 
thought very high of these three men and these great accomplishments. But Noah had three sons, and three son, his three sons of Noah gave the world a new beginning. The three sons of Lamech and everybody in Cain's line perished in the flood. Noah and his three sons are going to be delivered from the flood, and his three sons are going to give the world a new beginning. Now that's the picture of the world at this time. And as you go into the next chapter, you'll find where God looks upon the world and sees that the, great, the wickedness of man is great. He saw the wickedness of man and how great his wickedness was. But in the midst of all this wickedness, it'd be like a dark cloud coming up on the horizon. In the midst of all this wickedness, we find a man by the name of Noah. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, somebody wrote a song, a hymn about that. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, you're going to find this expression used with a number of people in the Old Testament in particular. But every time you find where somebody finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, I can assure you that's somebody that grace has already found. Grace has already found them before they ever find grace in the eyes of the Lord. So why did Noah find grace in the eyes of the Lord? And I want you to notice this. It says that God saw the great wickedness on the earth, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He saw the wickedness, but Noah found grace in God's eyes. That shows a different look that Noah received from God than the wicked did over here. So Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and there's three things that tells us why. He's a just man. He was a perfect man in his generations, and Noah walked with God, just like his great-grandfather, Noah, walked with God. When you begin to study the ages of these people that lived in the antediluvial age back here before the flood... We've already noticed they lived a long time. Most of them lived to be over 900 years of age. Lamech, 777. There was one that lived to be 895, I think. And, of course, we had Enoch that did not die. And you find this expression in this genealogy. As each one begot somebody and says, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. There's one person that doesn't say that about, and that's Enoch, because Enoch didn't die. Enoch's one of two men who lived on this earth that did not die who are in heaven today, the other one, of course, is Elijah. Enoch was translated, and Elijah was caught up in a whirlwind as God sent a chariot and a horse, horse and chariot of, of fire and got uh, Elijah and took him into heaven. So he was translated. But if you study their ages, you're going to find that Adam was still living when Enoch was living. Most likely, Adam and Enoch had conversation. And you're going to find that Adam was living when Methuselah was living. Most likely Methuselah had conversation with Adam. And Noah had conversation with his father Lamech, who had conversation with Methuselah, had conversation with Enoch. And so this thing trickles on down, you see. So Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In the time of great wickedness here, God is going to destroy this earth by a flood, but there's going to be eight people that he's going to spare. Noah found grace, that included him, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, eight people all together. God then tells Noah to build this ark. This ark is 450 foot in length. It is 75 foot tall and 50 feet in width. It's been estimated uh, that the animals that went on that ark with Noah, it would take over 500 railroad cars of stock you know, livestock cars, railroad livestock cars, this ark would hold over 500 of them, or about 125,000 animals. So let's take a look at the construction of this ark. 
Now, in the case of this ark, the other two arks I want to speak about, Lord, with as we go along, they all provided a shelter and safety for some type of wrath that was going to come. A flood is going to come. God says, my spirit shall not always strive with man. In man's days, it's going to be about 120 years. It's going to take about 120 years before the flood ever comes. Now, he tells Noah to build this ark. This ark is going to have three stories. It's going to be made out of gopher wood. It's going to have one door in the side. It's going to have a light up top. Now, gopher wood, it's, you know, nobody knows for sure what gopher wood was. Most likely the cypress wood uh, variety. But obviously it was a wood that would do well in water an incorruptible type of wood, because it's going to be in the water for quite a while. So he tells them to build it out of gopher wood. Now, as I think about this ark, it reminds me a lot of the Lord Jesus Christ in a number of ways. First of all, the ark was a provision that God made for Noah and his family. The Lord Jesus Christ is a provision that God has made for his elect family. In the book of 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21, Peter says, For as much as you know, you're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but by the precious blood of the Lamb of God, without spot and without blemish, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. He was verily foreordained before the foundation of the world to come into this world to save his people from their sins. In Revelation 13 and 8, he's referred to as the book of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Christ was God's provision. Christ was not asked for by man. Christ was God's provision for man. Christ is God's provision for his children. The ark was God's provision for Noah and his family to give them a place of safety from the raft that was going to come in terms of the flood. We find again it's made out of gopher wood. We find Noah did not have a Lowe's or a Home Depot to go down to and buy all the wood to make this ark. Most people today, if you're going to build a table, if you're going to build uh, anything out of wood, you go to Lowe's, you go to Home Depot, you buy your wood, you bring it home, and if you know how to do it, you build it. Noah didn't have a Home Depot. He didn't have a Lowe's. Some trees had to be cut down. And to cut down those trees, we have a picture of death here. Those trees were living trees, but now they've been cut down. They've been slain. They've been cut down. And now he's going to make this ark out of this gopher wood. It's going to take a a long time to build this ark. It's going to be an expensive thing. It's going to take a lot of effort and a lot of labor. Then he tells them to make it three stories high. When I think about the threes in the Bible, uh, the list is almost endless. There's the three in heaven, of course, Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. There's three to bear witness on this earth, the Spirit and the blood and the water. We find three dispensations. The dispensation from Adam to to Moses, from Moses to the first coming of Christ, first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. We find that we have been delivered in three different ways. Second Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Who hath delivered us from so great a death, whom we, he doth deliver, whom we trust he will yet deliver. We've been delivered from the penalty of sin by Christ on the cross. We are being delivered from the power of sin. If you draw nigh to God and you study his word and you pray and you're faithful in the, in the house of God and live close to the Lord, it will save you from the power of sin while you travel here. And then, one day the Lord's coming back again. He's going to deliver us from the presence of sin. We'll be through with sin at that point. He'll deliver us from the presence of sin. So God delivers us, has delivered us from the penalty of sin, currently being delivered uh, through the gospel and God's word from the power of sin, and one day we'll be delivered from the very presence of sin. Three's all over the place. 
So here's three stories. But I like to think about it this way as well, in these three dispensations I was talking about. From Adam to Moses, there were no scriptures. When God spoke to people, spoke to man, he spoke directly to them. There was no scriptures at that time. From Moses to the first coming of the Lord and Jesus Christ, the scriptures now are being written. Moses will write the first five books of the Bible, 39 books of the Old Testament. goes from Genesis to Malachi. No New Testament. 400 years from Malachi to Matthew. And then we have the New Testament now is being recorded. 27 books from Matthew to the Apostle John, the book of Revelation. My point is this. We're living in the most enlightened age of anybody upon the face of this earth. We have a complete Bible. We have the Lord's church. We have the kingdom of God. We have the proclamation of the gospel. We have ministers declaring God's word in power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. That did not exist from Adam to Moses. That did not exist from Moses to the Lord Jesus Christ. It exists today. There was some light between Adam and Moses, understanding. There was a little more light between Moses and the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then from the first coming of Christ to the end of time to the second coming of Christ, we live in the most enlightened age that man has lived in. That ark's got one window. The window's at the top. When no one then wanted to look out, God didn't give them a window at the bottom and the floor where they could look and see all the destruction. He gave them a window at the top. When they looked out the window, they had to look up. They had to look up. That top floor had more light than the middle floor. The middle floor had more light than the lower floor. Now, light came all the way down, I'm sure, to all, in all three floors, but the bottom floor got the least amount of light, the middle floor got the next most light, and then the top floor got more light than the middle floor or the bottom floor. So you got three dispensations. There was a little light between Adam and Moses, more light between Moses, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, in the gospel age, in the gospel dispensation, God's people have more information, they have more opportunity to be more enlightened than any of God's children since the very beginning of time. But you see, the amount of revelation is not going to be the determining factor how many people are going to be in heaven. This goes back to what Brother Tim was preaching on this morning. Because God's had a people in every nation, kindred, tongue, and people on the face of this earth since the very beginning from Adam right on up to this present time. He did not depend upon man on this earth to do the work of enabling people to know God. But that's an impossibility. In Hebrews chapter 8, the writer tells us, this is the covenant I make with the house of Israel that day, no longer shall any man teach his brother or his neighbor to know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Isn't that a wonderful text? They all shall know me. How many is going to know him? They're all going to know him, from the least unto the greatest. It's God that borns you, the Spirit of God, puts his divine nature inside of you, that enables you to know him, that gives you desire to love him, desire to pray to him, desire to look in his word, desire to discuss these things with the Lord's people. Right? That desire comes from a divine nature. It does not come from a human nature. It comes from a divine nature. It's God who enables you to know him. It's the preacher's responsibility to teach you about him, you see. So the degree of revelation has been, you know, different since the very beginning of time and in this present time, God hasn't depended upon that to help him get people into glory. No, indeed. So we got three stories this arc here. We got one window. And the window, when you look out the window, you have to be looking up. 
It's got one door. It's in the side. The Lord Jesus Christ said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father except by me. He says, I am the way. He's not a way. He's the way. That door is in the side. Now, that door had to be big enough to get all the animals in it, and there are some pretty big animals like an elephant. So it had to be a pretty big door. Even if it was a baby elephant, it had to be a pretty big door, right? But it was big enough that Noah and his family and all the animals on the earth were able to get through that door and get onto the ark. And somebody says, well, how in, how in the world did Noah round all them animals up? It's real easy. You look at verse 19, Genesis chapter 6. And God is telling Noah to bring those animals onto the ark. He says, and they shall come unto you. God just overruled their nature, gave them the, the desire, gave them the, you know, provoked them to, to come to Noah, and they just came right on. Noah didn't have to go out and round them all up. They came to Noah. That's not a problem with God. <laughs> not a problem with God at all. And then we find where God shut the door. When they all got in, Noah didn't shut the door. God shut the door. And when God shut the door, they were secure in that ark. And I'm telling you this morning, we like to preach the eternal security of the Lord's people. We like to preach the preservation of the saints. That God's children are preserved in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have eternal security in Him. That's why the Lord taught like He did in John chapter 10. He said, I'm the uh, good shepherd of the sheep. The good shepherd layeth down his life for the sheep. He said, I know my sheep, they follow me. I've given them eternal life and they shall never perish. And no man can pluck them out of my hand. And my Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand, for I and the Father are one. Now, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul starts off like this. If he be there before we be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. He says, set your affection on things above, not on things below. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. You see where Noah's at and his family? They're in that ark. The door has been shut. They now have safety. They now have security from the flood that's going to come. And it's going to cause all the O's on the outside of the ark to perish. Not a single one of them will perish. They will live in that ark. The flood will last for five months. And then they're going to come off that ark. You know how many people's coming off that ark? Every single one that went on the ark. Eight people and all the animals that went on that ark, every one of them is coming out of that ark. Not one has perished during that period of time. Not one has died. All that went on that ark, all is coming out of that ark. Now, this ark was pitched within and without. The Hebrew word for pitch here means atonement. It means to cover. I'm thankful that I preached to the Lord's people that the atonement price was paid. You know the word atonement? It's used one time in the Bible, found in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For when we were enemies, and we were by nature, we were enemies, we were saved to God by the death of His Son. Much more, we shall be reconciled by His life. Now, much more, we have received the atonement. And when you break the word atonement up, it's that at one meant. You're now one with God again. You see that? At one meant, atonement, through the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord's people now 
have had their sins remitted, the ransom price was paid, and heaven now is your home. That ark was pitched within, and ark was pitched without. That word means atonement. It means to cover. Your sins had to be covered. Where did that ark come to rest at? That ark was built on the ground. It came to rest on top of the mountains of Ararat. When the Lord Jesus Christ left heaven, he came to this world and he walked on this ground. But after his resurrection, he spent 40 days upon the face of this earth. And then what happened? He ascended from this earth and he went to, back to glory and he sat down on the right hand, the majesty on high, up there, right? This ark come to rest on the mountains of Ararat on the 17th day of the seventh month. When you trace that out, I think you will find that that was the very date of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. God tells Noah to build that ark. It's got one door, one window, three stories made out of gopher wood. It's pitched within, it's pitched without. That ark floated. Now, this ark was not made for navigation. All right? They didn't have to worry about navigating. Just had to worry about it. was it going to float. <laughs> it was going to float because God is the one who gave the list of materials. It was God who told him to make it out of gopher wood. It's God who gave the blueprint. It's God, you know, that gave him all the instructions for the ark. And the last verse of uh, Genesis chapter 6 says, and Noah did all that God commanded him. And then three times in chapter 7 it says the same thing. Four different times it says, Noah did all that God commanded him. This ark was designed of God, provided by God, to deliver Noah and his family and nobody else. Nobody else. Now, this, this thing about people always talking about how Noah was always preaching and trying to get people to repent and come on to the ark. That ark was designed for those eight people and nobody else. When the flood is over, and five months later, Noah and his family comes off that ark, you know the first thing that Noah does? He doesn't build him a house. He builds an altar. That's the first thing he does. He builds an altar to God. And then the Lord tells Noah, he says, never again will I destroy this earth by a flood. He said, I'm going to put a bow in the sky, a rainbow. When I see the rainbow, it'll remind me of the covenant that I made with Noah and all mankind that never again will this earth be destroyed by a flood. It will be destroyed, but it'll be by fire next time. Second, Tim, uh, Second Peter chapter 3. When I, see the, when I see the bow, it's unfortunate that there's people in this world today who've taken that and pulled it right down into the, to the garbage of this world. That ark provided safety for Noah and his family. Now we come over here to the book of Exodus, chapter 1 and chapter 2, and you find, you know, Genesis chapter 50 ends with Joseph uh, telling his brethren that the Lord shall surely visit them. And over 200 some years later, he did. And things were qu going quite well when he said that. And then Joseph died, but not before he charged his brethren to be sure to get his bones and bring him out of Egypt whenever God visited them. But Exodus chapter 1 tells us there's a new Pharaoh in town. And this Pharaoh here, in my opinion, is a picture of the devil himself. He's a type of Satan. He takes a look and he sees that the Israelites have multiplied themselves to the extent that it's causing him concern. If we go out to war, these Israelites go to the other side. He says they'll become our enemies. 
And the best thing to do is to stop that. So I want you to start putting them under a great task and we're going to diminish the numbers. But it didn't work. The more they tried to put burdens upon the nation of Israel, the more they multiplied. It got worse. It didn't get better. It got worse. So then he tells the midwives. He says to the midwives, whenever a Hebrew woman is going to have a child, if it's a male child, you're to slay that child. But the Bible says that the midwives feared God more than they did Pharaoh. And they didn't do it. And Pharaoh asked them why they were not doing it. You know what the answer was? They said, well, the Hebrew women are stronger, more lively than the Egyptian women. And before we can get there, they didn't have the child. It's too late. <laughs> and the Bible says that God built the midwives' houses. I don't know for sure what all that might mean, but I know this. It means God took care of them. God took care of them. God provided for them. So now Pharaoh enlists all the people, all the Egyptians, to be on the lookout when a Hebrew woman has a child, it's a male child, that child is to be drowned in the Nile River. Now, there's a husband and wife who already have two children. And the name of one of those children is Miriam, and the name of the other child is Aaron. Now, they know what this decree is. They understand it. But they go on and live a normal life. They love one another. They have a normal relationship one with another. And lo and behold, she conceives. Now, they could have taken great precaution for that not to happen due to that decree. But you're going to find this man and woman are people of faith. They're going to trust and depend upon the Lord. So a child is born. And they're going to have that child for three months. Child is Moses. Going to hide him for three months. Now you can read over here in the 11th chapter of Hebrews in Acts chapter 7 where he says they knew that he was a proper child. There was something about this child here that let them know he's just not ordinary, something special about him. And so they're going to put their trust in the Lord to take care of him. When he's three months old, it can no longer be hid. So they've hid him for three months. But now the time has come they can't hide him any longer. His mother makes an ark out of bulrushes. Here's ark number two. Go make an ark out of bulrushes, and this ark will only be big enough for one person. And she takes that ark of bulrushes and she daubs it with slime and pitch. Now, when I, when I read that word daub, it reminds me of my childhood days on the tobacco farm. We had log tobacco barns. And uh, those logs were not exactly tight. You could get in the barn and you could see daylight. So you know what my dad had me and my brother doing? Mixing up mud. And we went on the inside and took that mud and we smeared it between the logs. We, and it called daubing. <laughs> we daubed it. <laughs> I put most of it on that and the rest of it I slung toward my brother. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we daubed those logs. Brother Junior knows what I'm talking about. They, she daubed this ark made out of bulrushes with pitch and slime, made it waterproof. And she takes it down to the river and she puts it among the flags upon the reeds around the edge of the, edge of the river. And then she sends her daughter Miriam to see what happens. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11, they did this by faith. They're trusting that God is going to take care of this little three-month-old three baby. 
She don't know what's going to happen to it, but she has hit it. And she followed the letter of the law from the standpoint of putting him in the river. <laughs> she did. She put him in the river, but she put him in an ark made out of bulrushes. And here Moses is going to be in that ark and he's going to receive safety and shelter in, in what his mother has prepared for him. Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the river. Pharaoh's daughter hears a baby cry. She investigates, finds out it's a Hebrew baby. Now you think about this. She is the daughter of Pharaoh who's put out the decree that every male Hebrew that's born is to be drowned in the Nile River. Here's a Hebrew baby, three months old, in the Nile River, in the Ark of Bulrushes. She could easily say, well, drown the baby. The Bible says she had compassion on it. God's going to use this three-month-old baby 80 years down the road to come down to Egypt and bring his people out. And the providence of God is such a marvelous thing. I love reading all the providential stories in the Bible. I mean, it's, it's full of it from Genesis to Revelation. I love my own experiences with the providence of God. I love to hear your experiences with the providence of God, how God has guided and directed and protected along life's pathway. He's given you things that you never thought you'd have, took you places you never thought you'd go, <laughs> gave you your wife, gave you your husband, gave you your children, gave you your family. I could go on and on and on about that, right? But can, isn't this marvelous? And his sister sees all of this and she says to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I fetch a Hebrew woman to nurse the child? She says, yes. She goes and gets Moses' mother to do it. But daughter of Pharaoh doesn't know it's his mother. And she says to the mother of Moses, you take and nurse this child, raise him up, nurse this child, and I'll give you wages for it. I'll pay you to do it. <laughs> the Lord <laughs> paid, the Lord saw to it that Moses' mother's going to get paid to raise her own child. Here's an ark, just like Noah's ark, slightly different in size, Right? But both of them was constructed and built to shelter someone in it in a place of safety. Now we move over here to Exodus chapter 25. This Moses, who was laid in an ark of bulrushes at the age of three months, is going to be directed of God, instructing God to build a tabernacle and to build an ark of the covenant. Of course, Moses wrote Genesis. Moses wrote all about Noah's ark. Moses wrote all about his own ark. And he's going to write about this ark. You go to Exodus chapter 25, and the first nine verses is very important. Because you're going to find what God tells Moses. He says, command the people. He says, all who are willing and from their heart to bring me an offering that I will accept. He said, I'll accept the offering for people who are willing to bring it, and they're bringing it from the heart. When you go several chapters over, I think it's chapter 36, if I'm not mistaken, you're going to find where Moses and them had restrained the people from bringing so much. He says, they came to Moses, they, the people bring more than enough. He said, we, they bring more than enough, you need to restrain the people from bringing. And that's the kind of people I like to be in the midst of. Generosity, my friends, just abounded. Don't you just love to be around generous people, willing-hearted people whose hearts have been stirred and they're just happy to, to bring their, the, the, what God has blessed them with to the house of God? 
to use what God has blessed them with in this God-honoring way. And they honored God and God blessed it. They had more than enough. They brought gold. They brought silver. They brought brass. They brought spices. They brought precious onyx stones. They brought colors of blue and scarlet and red of linen, one thing or another, badger skin. And, um, to build the tabernacle. He says, I might have a sanctuary. And then the very first thing he tells them to build is the Ark of the Covenant. Let's notice what this built out of. It's built out of shittim wood. Now, shittim wood is a very incorruptible wood. It points to the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it would be overlaid with pure gold, which points to the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ, his divine nature. He's the Son of Man and the Son of God. And then on top of this, there was to be a mercy seat of pure gold to cover it. Now this uh, Ark of the Covenant is approximately three and a half feet this wide, two and a half feet this wide, and two and a half feet up like this. So a mercy seat was going to cover it. And I want you to notice the mercy seat was a perfect fit. It wasn't too narrow. It wasn't too, uh, you know, too short. It was a perfect fit. And the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, that was shed was a perfect fit. There'll be nobody who the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for that won't be in heaven. Did you know that? If the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for somebody, they'll be in glory some sweet day. He didn't shed more blood than was needed. He didn't shed two less. The blood of Jesus Christ is a perfect fit for the elect family of God. The ark was made out of pure gold and it covered the ark of the covenant perfectly. And it was a crown of gold all the way around it. And there was two rings of gold on each side and then there was two stays made out of shining wood overlaid with pure gold. Everything in this uh, tabernacle was made out of shining wood and overlaid with pure gold. And then those stays were put in those two rings on each side and that's how it was taken from point A to point B and transported. And then there was two cherubims one on each end, and they spread their wings, and they pointed one to another. And this mercy seat here is God's seat. It's where God came down from heaven and met with the high priest who came in there once a year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the sins of the Israelites. What was on the inside of this Ark of the Covenant? The first thing that's put in the Ark of the Covenant is the two tables of stone, two tables of the law. That Ark of the Covenant represents the Lord Jesus Christ who kept the law to a jot and a tittle. He told his disciples, Think not I've come to destroy the law, but rather to fulfill the law. Christ fulfilled the law from beginning to end. Something I could not do, something you could not do. And you see, we are sheltered from the condemnation of the law by the person that this, that this Ark of the Covenant represents. This Ark of the Covenant represents the Lord and Jesus Christ. He and he only could keep the law to total perfection, and he did that. Anybody here today want to tell me with a straight face that you've kept the Ten Commandments to a jot and a tittle all your life? I don't think so. I'll wait outside if you want to come to me and tell me you have kept the Ten Commandments one through ten to total perfection. You've never come up short in keeping the Ten Commandments. And when I get through talking to you, I believe you'll be like the rich young ruler. You'll go away sorrowful. 
That's what he did. He said, well, I've kept all these from my youth up. The Lord said, well, you lack one. What's that, Lord? He said, go and sell all that you got and give to the poor. The very one he did not tell the rich young ruler about was the sin of covetousness. Go and sell what you got. Give to the poor and come and follow me. The man came to the right man with the right question. He got the right answer, but he didn't like it. He went away sorrowful because he was attached to those riches that he had, you see. He come up short, didn't he? The apostle Paul would come up short. He said, when I would do good, evil is present with me. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who have delivered me from the power, or who have delivered me from the body of this death. He's got the right answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That first ark was a shelter for Noah and his family from the raft of that flood that came for 40 days and 40 nights. That ark that Moses was in was a shelter and a place of safety from the decree of Pharaoh from the devil himself. And those ten commandments, those two tables of stone that's in the ark of the covenant, he put in there for safekeeping. What happened with the first two stones of the Ten Commandments? You remember what happened about them? Moses met God on top of Mount Sinai. And Moses wrote the Ten, excuse me, God wrote the Ten Commandments, those two table stones, with his own finger. And he gave it to Moses. And Moses comes down the mountain. And the children of Israel are already fallen into idolatry. They're going around dancing around a golden calf. And Moses was so upset and mad about it, he took the two tables of stone and threw them down and broke them. Right there on the mountain. God called him back up there. Gave him two tables again. And then he tells him, says, you put them in the Ark of the Covenant for safekeeping. Because that Ark of the Covenant is going to represent my son. And he's the only one that can keep them. And I want to give this as my, perhaps my closing thoughts here this morning. When Moses went on top of Mount Sinai, the people in general stayed at the base and not too close to the mountain for fear. But Moses and Aaron and Joshua and one more, there's four of them, and then 70 men representing Israel, the 74 went up the mountain for a ways. And then Moses said, you stay here while Joshua and I go a little higher. And then he got to another point where Joshua stayed there and Moses went all the way to the top. You know what Moses saw on the top of that mountain? He saw the glory of God. The people were satisfied at the base just to hear the words of God through Moses. But you see, the higher that mountain you went, the more glorious it became. <laughs> Where are you at on the mountaintop today? On this mountain? Where, what position are you in today? Are you at the base of the mountain? Are you up a certain ways on the mountain? Maybe a little bit higher on the mountain? How far you want to go? I want to go to the top. I want to go all the way to the top. I want to be up there with Moses where I can see the very glory of God. And that's what Moses saw. He spent 40 days and 40 nights there with him. Going up higher, going up higher, going up higher, going up higher. And then those two cherubims, they had those two wings that come down throughout the Bible. Six different times in the Psalms, David speaks about trusting in the wings of God. Psalm 17, 8, he says to the Lord, Lord, he says, keep me as the apple of thine eye and hide me under the shadow of thy wings. The wings of God are a picture of God's protection. And his people, as they are under the wings of God, 
Uh, they find a refuge. They find a sanctuary right there. And under the wings of God, they have, a, uh, they have a place where they can put their trust in the everlasting God, you see. So he says, keep me as the apple of thine eye. Keep me, keep me. I, I like to preach about a God that can keep me. <laughs> that I might trust in thy wings, under the, in the shadow of thy wings. You know, when Ruth and Boaz were talking, Boaz was talking to Ruth. He says unto Ruth, he says, Thou art highly favored of God. May God give you a full reward under whose wings thou art come to trust. I like to think about those wings of the, of the eagle and the little eaglets, eaglets, what do you want to call them? <laughs> or tr uh, underneath those wings of that eagle. And she's going to take care of and protect them. And that's God's wings for us. And we're trusting on the wings of God. All three of these arcs provide a shelter and a place of safety from God's wrath, from Satan, and from the condemnation of the law. God's people have been delivered from all three of these.